everybody. Can we give just another round of applause for those kids? They did such a great job. Um, I, I would not have had the courage to do that at their age. I don't think I have the courage to do that now. So that was, that was pretty impressive. Um, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 3. Uh, we are picking up where we left off last week. And, and as we open up our text, the, the question that has become the name of this series, the question that has been just burning its way through every page of Mark is before us again. Who do you say that I am? And that question is becoming more acute. Uh, Jesus has called out of his disciples a group of 12 that he calls apostles. He is laying the foundations for his church with these men who are going to be with him throughout his ministry and then are going to bear witness to him after his death and his resurrection. But even as Jesus is doing that, you notice all of these people stumbling on the rock that is Christ. And not always the people that you'd expect. And so as we read this text this morning, here's the question I want us to be asking. Not just how are these people stumbling on the rock that is Christ, but how are we stumbling on that same rock? Stand with me if you would. We'll read starting in verse 20. Then Jesus went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And Jesus called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to Jesus and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And Jesus answered them, Who? Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, Jesus said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. 
This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we ask this morning, Lord, would you, through your spirit, would you take this text and would you open our eyes and our ears and our hearts wide to the beauty of Jesus? Lord, would you take whatever noise we are carrying in from the outside, Lord, if it's distraction or apathy or indifference or sadness or grief or whatever it might be, and we pray, Lord, would you cut through all of that so that what we would hear in this moment would be the voice of your son calling us by name. Would you do that now in his precious name? Amen. You can take your seats. As most of you know at this point, I grew up, I spent my formative years in Dallas, Texas. And if you were growing up in Dallas, Texas in the 90s, uh, that meant that there was one sports team above just about every other one that had your attention, and that was the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, they were America's team, but if you were in Dallas, they were pretty much a religion, something I know Alabama knows nothing about. In the space of four years, they had won three Super Bowls. They had guys on their roster who were all future Hall of Famers. You had Troy Aikman and Emmitt Smith and Michael Irvin and Deion Sanders. And, and I remember as a small kid watching the Super Bowl with my aunts and my uncles and my cousins and my family in my uncle's living room on this little 13-inch TV. We would all gather around and we would cheer for the Cowboys. And I remember... Even as a small kid, begging my parents to give me a number 22 Emmett Smith jersey for Christmas because I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. And if you had asked me, at that age, Caleb, are you a Dallas Cowboys fan? I would have said absolutely yes. There would have been no hesitation. But if my dad had been standing next to me when I answered that question, my dad would have given me the side eye and said, you are? Because you don't ever really watch any of their games unless it's the Super Bowl. And even when the Super Bowl's on, you're more interested in the queso and in playing with your cousins than you actually are with what's going on in the screen. And you know some of the names of the players, but can you name me one of their positions? You don't pay attention to the scores in the regular season. You don't get upset when they lose a game. You don't care when a star player gets injured. You're not going to lose any sleep over that moment. And the only reason that you want that number 22 jersey, it's not because you idolize Emmett Smith. It's because you see other kids wearing it and you think they look cool. You're not a real fan. You like the Cowboys, but you're not truly a fan of the Cowboys. Now, that's a silly kind of debate, but that kind of debate permeates our lives. I mean, it's the question that sits at the heart of that, that thing we all wrestle through as children of how do I discern the difference between a true friend and a false one? A friend that I can trust versus someone that I cannot. It, it's the kind of question that we see play out all the time when some pastor makes a comment that's controversial in some form or fashion, and then we watch online as everyone starts to debate, does that comment make them a false teacher or a true teacher? Does it simply show them to be a misguided one? And usually in those debates, it ends up just producing a lot more heat than it does light. It's that question of what is true and what is false who is in and who is out, and it is the kind of debate that we see raging through our text today. 
three different groups of people encounter Jesus. And they respond to him in three very different ways. And at the heart of every encounter is one question. Who is truly a part of the family of God? Who is truly a citizen of this kingdom that Christ has come to bring? I mean, so far in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has been unveiling his identity. He has been announcing himself as the spirit-anointed Messiah, the one promised by God who has come to deliver his people from their slavery to sin. He's the one who has come to restore this world, this creation of God's that sin has ravaged in the same way he restores the withered man's hand as we saw last week. And he is already forming a people around himself, 12 disciples for 12 tribes, a new creation in the midst of the world. And this question, this question is presenting itself to those around him and to us today. How do you know you were a part of that people? How do you know that you share in that deliverance, that you have tasted his mercy, that you have received his forgiveness, that you are heirs of these promises. And while most of the time with questions of this nature, we always end up with slippery answers, Jesus, through the responses of these three groups, Jesus gives us a clear one. The first response that we see comes from these scribes who are making their way down from Jerusalem, these men who've traveled a very long way but it's clear pretty quickly they've come a long way for a very bad reason. Their response, it's not the response of friends, it's the response of enmity. They come down to confront Jesus, not because they've heard good things and they want to see if it's true, they've come down to observe Jesus because they have already passed sentence on him. You see it in verse 22, They look at Jesus and they say, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. Now notice something really interesting. They they don't deny the things they've heard. They don't deny that the lame man is now walking. They don't deny that the man with the withered hand now has fingers that are wriggling. They don't deny that Jesus was right in his interpretation of the Sabbath when he debated the Pharisees. They don't even deny that the demons are falling down in front of Jesus in terror or that Jesus is casting them out. They don't deny any of those things because they can't. What do they do? They don't call into question if Jesus has done those things. They call into question how. Jesus is embodying the life-giving God who created them and formed them for himself. He is bringing life where there is death everywhere that he goes, and their response to that reality is to look at Jesus and to say, that must be Satan. Now, it's really easy to pass judgment on the scribes in this moment, but what they're doing, it's not that unfamiliar. You know, when I was a kid, I would get in these knockdown, drag-out fights with my dad all the time. I mean, you could have torn the paint from the walls with the intensity of those fights. We would just yell back and forth at each other, mostly me, not him. Uh, and in those moments, in those moments, I remember distinctly knowing 99% of the time I was wrong. 
I had done something wrong, my dad was calling me out, and I just didn't want to admit it. And my dad would sit there and he would just marshal evidence. He would start naming all the things that had actually happened, and I would sit there getting hemmed in more and more and more, and I would start to panic because I knew I couldn't escape, and so I would start looking for anything. I'd be like, look, there's a squirrel. Look at that. Let's go over here. Anything to avoid acknowledging the truth. Because in my pride, in my pride, I didn't want to admit that maybe, just maybe, I had done something wrong because I was afraid about what it would say about me. We do this with Jesus all the time. Jesus starts putting his finger on something that's taking place in our hearts, and what is our instinctual response? We try to hem and haw, we try to justify the behavior, we try to find some way to escape it. Why? Because in our pride, we are afraid of what it might mean to say, Jesus, you're right. It's not the lack of evidence. It's our fear of the conclusion. That's the scribes. They're kicking against the pricks. But notice how Jesus responds to them. He has every right to castigate them. They're staring him in the face, the Son of God in human flesh, and they are calling him someone possessed by Satan. But even though they're treating Jesus as their enemy, how does Jesus treat them? He doesn't treat them as his enemy. He invites them to be his friend. He answers their question. And then he extends both an invitation and a warning. At first, there's the answer to their question. He, he looks at them in verse 23 and he says, how? How can Satan cast out Satan? And Mark doesn't tell us this, but I can kind of in my head picture what Jesus' face must look like in this moment. It's probably something to what my face looks like when one of my daughters brings me their homework to check, and you can tell if you're a parent and you've ever checked homework, you know this feeling. You're looking at something where the issue is not lack of ability, but lack of effort. And you're looking at it, and you're going, really? Like, this is what we're going to go with? Jesus is looking at the scribes and going, this was your conclusion. You saw all these things, and your conclusion was Satan is casting out Satan. I mean, you know just from everyday experience this can't be true. A kingdom divided against itself, guess what happens? It falls. A house divided against itself, guess what happens to it? It falls, and guess who should know that better than anyone else? The scribes. Because who are they? They're the sons of a divided kingdom, Israel and Judah, and guess what happened to that kingdom? It fell. They are the heirs of a divided house that claimed royal authority. And guess what happened with that divided house in 60 BC? They got beaten by the Romans. If Satan is resisting Satan, Jesus says, then Satan is basically committing suicide. And Satan is a lot of things, but he's not suicidal. That is one thing that he is not going to be doing. He doesn't give up power. He wants to hold it. And then Jesus says this, verse 27, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus says, 
you're looking at all this evidence and you've come to your conclusion. But there's another possibility. Something that better fits the evidence. It's that someone stronger than Satan is here. Someone who has come to plunder his house. Someone like the one promised in Isaiah 49 who would take the oppressor and the mighty and bring them to their knees and set free the captives who had been in their prisons. Someone, Jesus says, like me. And you hear, you hear in that this hint of an invitation. You know, pride Pride makes us think, for a moment at least, that we're kings. Pride makes us think that we're in control. Jesus is looking at the scribes and he's saying, no, your pride has actually made you slaves. Your pride is keeping you as captives in Satan's house because your pride has set you against the one who would be your deliverer. He says in verse 28, Truly I say to you, all sins, all sins, will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. Jesus looks at these men who are committing this offense against him and he says, there is no sin you can commit that can't be forgiven. You can utter the most vile of blasphemies against God. You can even utter blasphemies against the Son of Man, as Jesus says in Luke 12. You can commit the most vile of depravities against other people and there is not one sin that the cross of Christ is not sufficient to atone for. The wideness of Christ's mercy, it is so expansive, it makes us uncomfortable even though we need it. Jesus is saying that there is mercy here even for you, even though you are my enemies, but with that invitation, he gives them this very clear, very stark, and if I'm honest, very frightening warning. He looks at them and he says this, verse 29, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For the scribes were saying, Jesus has an unclean spirit. You know, this one verse has destroyed a lot of tender consciousness over the years. You know, I remember when I first came to Christ, reading through John Bunyan's autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. If you don't know who Bunyan is, he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. He's this famous preacher. And in that autobiography, he said for two and a half years, he lived in terror because he thought he'd committed this sin. He thought that he had uttered a blaspheme against the Holy Spirit and that he had now stepped outside of the bounds of forgiveness, that he was sinking into this darkness that nothing could save him from, that no one could bring him out of. And I need you to hear this this morning because this is so easy to misinterpret. If you have that fear, if you feel like you have sunk into that darkness, you need to understand something so much. That very fear says you haven't committed this sin. Because that fear is not a sign of your damnation. That fear is actually a sign of the Spirit's work. Because that fear says what? You still hunger for repentance and for Christ's mercy. Jesus is saying the one who commits this sin, 
they don't hunger for those things. It's the person who ongoingly looks at the gracious will of God in Christ, who looks God and his kindness in the face and says, you are not good, you are evil. It is the one who, though they desperately need forgiveness, sets themselves in opposition to the only one who can actually give them that forgiveness and as a result loses divine mercy. And why is Jesus giving them this, this, this warning? Because Jesus wants them to know his mercy. He is loving his enemies even as he does on the cross. Who is in the family of God? It's not these men. These men have set themselves against the Lord their God in every way they possibly could, but there is also this other group in the text that's just as much outside, and this group is strange, because it's Jesus' physical family. A group of people who aren't responding with enmity, but instead with presumption. You know, two times in our text, Jesus' family, his mother and his brothers, they approach Jesus. Uh, the, the first time is before the scribes come, and the second time is, is right after. And there's a sort of sharp contrast with what the scribes are doing. The, the scribes are there because they oppose Jesus, but Jesus' family, why are they there? They're there because they're concerned for Jesus. But notice the one thing that unites both of those groups. Both of them come to Jesus, and they have already applied a label to him. The scribes are saying of Jesus, he's possessed by Satan. But Jesus' family? They come to Jesus, verse 21, and they say what? Jesus is out of his mind. Now, we can imagine what they must have been feeling in this moment. I mean, if you're Mary... This is the child that you not only birthed, this is the child you raised. You fed him, you nursed him, you changed his diapers, and Jesus did have diapers. You rocked him to sleep at night. You cared for him when he was sick. You came to him when he cried. If you were his brother, you grew up with Jesus. He was your first playmate. He was the one you have spent all your life around, and now you're watching as he starts this ministry, and suddenly there are crowds coming in around him so intensely that in the text just before this, we're told those crowds are threatening to crush him. That there are so many people around, Jesus can't even eat. And while all that is happening, all of which would be alarming to just about any normal family, you're also seeing that the very religious leaders who rule over your community, they hate him. Their animosity towards Jesus, it is growing, and you're hearing these whispers, these whispers that they are plotting to kill Jesus. And so if you're Jesus' family and you care about him, what are you going to do? I mean, I, I can tell you what my instinct would be to do in that moment. It's the same instinct that I've had when someone close to me, family and, or friend, has descended into mental illness or addiction. I want to do everything in that moment to stop them from going down the path they're going. I mean, so many of you know that feeling. Your heart is breaking and you are seeing someone hurtling towards what looks like destruction. And so what do you do? You throw out every roadblock that you can find to stop them. 
You chase them down. You try to pull them back from the edge and bring them back to what is safety. And that's what Jesus' family is trying to do. They show up first in verse 21, and they try to seize him. Literally, they try to grab Jesus and pull him away. They show up again in verses 31 and 32, and what do they do this time? They couldn't get a hold of him physically. The crowds are too great, and so what do they do? They send a messenger hoping that maybe Jesus will come out and talk to them, and they'll be able to speak some sense to him. And both times, both times they try to take control. They see a beloved son and brother who is in danger, and they're trying to pull him back from the edge, but in trying to stop Jesus... In presuming because they're his physical family that they have the right to control him, they reveal something crucial. They are just as much in the dark about Jesus as the scribes are. And we see this very strange thing at work. Misdirected love can sometimes be as dangerous as outright hate. They're looking at Jesus and they see a son who has lost his way. And they've missed something really important. Jesus isn't merely an earthly son of an earthly family, though he is that. He's the eternal son of a heavenly father who has sent him into this world with one purpose and one purpose only, and that is to plunder Satan's house. Which means, by trying to stop Jesus from going in the direction he's going, Jesus' family, for all of their care, they're pulling him from the very thing God sent him to do. Because how does Jesus bring the captives out of Satan's house? It's not by preserving his life. It's by giving it. You know, that temptation to presume that we have the right to control Jesus. It's, it's not one that just Jesus' physical family commits. I mean, this is, this is one that confronts us all the time. It shows itself in our politics where we, we craft a Jesus who mysteriously, it always seems strange how this works, mysteriously loves all the things our political party loves and hates all the things our political party hates and justifies whatever our political party wants to do and then we kind of dismiss the ways it puts him out of sorts with the Jesus of the Gospels. It shows itself in the way that we sometimes preach Jesus, the way I'm sometimes tempted to preach Jesus, where we preach a Jesus of truth but not grace because we're afraid if we give too much grace, people are just going to go crazy. Or we preach a Jesus who's grace but not truth because we're afraid of being legalistic and we're afraid that people won't come if we don't. And we end up preaching Jesus as we want him to be and not Jesus as he actually is. It shows itself when we presume that because we were baptized at some point in our lives or we had some experience where we walked down an aisle or because we attend church every week, that just because of those things that we are by right heirs of his mercy and recipients of his grace, it, it shows itself in those moments when we find ourselves saying, well, God is a God of love and Jesus is the face of that love and so he's just supposed to accept whatever I want to do. In each and every one of those things, what are we doing? We're trying to control Jesus. And Jesus says that may be the kind of Christ that you want, 
That's not the kind of Christ you need. We don't need a Christ who is a slave to our whims and our desires. We need a Christ who can save us from our whims and our desires. We don't need a Christ that we can bind. We need a Christ who can bind the evil one who even now holds us captive. And Jesus says, that is the Christ I have come to be. I have taken on human flesh so that I could enter into death so that as Hebrews 2 says, through death I might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death are subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus says, that's who I am. But so long as you presume that you have the right to control me, you have actually set yourself in opposition to me. And you have placed yourself outside of my family even as the scribes have. So who is in the family of God? Who, as Jesus says, are my brothers and my mother? It's not the scribes and their enmity. It's not Jesus' physical family and their presumption. So who is it? Jesus says, here's who's a part of my family. Verse 34. And looking about at those who sat around him, Jesus said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Who is the one who is in Christ's family? It's the one, he says, who does God's will. Now that is something that we can complicate really quickly, but Jesus, all through the Gospels, he makes it very simple. It's the one who responds to Jesus in faith. It's the one who hears the announcement of the Gospel and does that thing that Jesus commands all of us to do in Mark 1.15. They repent and they believe. It's the one who knows that they are bound. That they are in the clutches of someone who is greater than ourselves, someone that we are powerless to set ourselves free from, but then also knows there is one in Christ who can actually set us free. One who through death destroys the one who has the power of death. It's the person who comes, as we've said throughout this series, with nothing but need and receives from Christ every single thing that they require. And it's the one who submits their will to God's will because they have seen that will in the face of Christ and realized that he is everything that they could ever need or require. You know, I've been married for almost 15 years to my wife, Mallory, and uh, I'm not a perfect husband by any stretch. Mal can tell you all sorts of fun, fun stories. But I have learned a few things in those years. One of those is if I treat my wife like my enemy, it doesn't matter how kind she is. It doesn't matter how good she is. It doesn't matter how much she loves me. I will have cut myself off from experiencing the gift that she is to me. And if I, on the other hand, presume to have a right to control my wife and to try to turn her into someone after my own image, if you're married, you know that doesn't go very well either. 
you will cut yourself off from the gift that your spouse would be whenever you try to take control like that. What is the only way that you can actually experience your spouse as the gift that God intends them? It's when you love them and accept them as they are. Jesus, Jesus is saying something similar here. He's saying, so long as you treat me as your enemy, so long as you presume to control me, then all that I am and all that I have, it will never be yours. But if you accept me as I am, then all that I am and all that I have, I give it to you. But here is the one massive difference between what Jesus is saying and what's true in marriage. My wife is wonderful. She's my equal, but she's also like me, a sinner. And because she is my equal, but also a sinner, that means that in our marriage, there is give and take that has to take place. There are two people who have to change, not just one. That's not Jesus, is it? Jesus isn't our equal. Jesus isn't a sinner. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the Lord. He is the one through whom everything that exists has come into being. He is the one who created not just you, but me. He is the one before whom one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. He's the one who even now has the angels around him crying, holy, 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 holy. He is the one that has right to lay claim to every single bit of us. And we hear that and we think of what it would mean to submit to someone like that to say, I'm giving myself to you totally and it creates this fear in our hearts because what kind of lords have we experienced in this life? Tyrants. We have experienced lords who were sinners like ourselves and who used that power not to, hurt us, not to help us but to hurt us. But here's the beauty of Jesus, the one who calls us to come and accept him as he is, to accept him as Lord, who is he? He is the one who sets us free from the strong man, how? By allowing himself to be bound. He's the one who gives us life, not by preserving his life, but how? By sacrificing it. He's the one who doesn't respond to his enemies with hate. He responds to his enemies with sacrificial love. And though he has every right to castigate and every right to condemn, what does Jesus do? In this text, he is swinging the gates of his kingdom wide. Not just to tax collectors and sinners, but even to hostile scribes and presumptuous relations. And Jesus isn't just inviting them in, Jesus brings them in. And you see it in this. After Jesus' death and resurrection, who do we find numbered among the members of the church? Jesus' mother Mary and Jesus' brother James and who else? A man who, like the scribes, would have looked at Jesus and said, you are possessed by Satan. A man that would go, we would probably say, was the greatest of the apostles, a man named Paul. Which means this. 
it doesn't matter how you responded to Jesus in the past. It doesn't matter how you responded to him this morning. What matters is how we're responding to him now. As Augustine says, some predestined friends, as yet unknown even to themselves, are concealed among Christ's most open enemies. Which means no one. No one is beyond hope. Who is the true member of Christ's family? Jesus says simply this, whoever, whoever, whoever does the will of God. Amen. Gracious Father, we are thankful this morning that we have a Savior who so profoundly loves us in Christ, who provides for us in every single way, Lord, who meets us in our need, who responds to our enmity with kindness and our presumption with love. And we pray this morning as we come to this table, Lord, would you take everything that is, is pictured here in sign and sacrament, Lord, would you take it and would you press it into our very hearts and souls? Would you take the gospel that we've just heard and Lord, would you not only enable us to see it physically here but to experience it as we taste these elements through your spirit. In Christ's name we pray, amen.